Welcome to another episode of Saints and Sinners Unplugged. I am Pastor Ken Jones, and I am joined by our regular co-hosts, Pastor David Menendez, Pastor uh, Jose Prado, and Aldo Leon, who is coming to us remotely from beautiful, was it Boca Raton? That's right. Okay, Boca Raton. Um, we are four local pastors here in the city of Miami who happen to be committed to the doctrines of grace, a la Reformed theology. We get together each week at this time to discuss various aspects of church history and reformational theology in particular. Now, today we are delighted to have another guest. We have almost kind of turned into a, an interview show, <laughs> but we are delighted to have with us on the line uh, Pastor Byron Yawn from Christ Community Church. Is that correct? In Franklin, Tennessee? Community, community Bible Church in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. Ah, so Christ. Okay. Christ Community is Scotty Smith, and I, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than pleased to be confused with him, so that's fine. <laughs> that's quite all right. But Byron is, is with us. Uh, he is not only the pastor of Community Bible Church, but he is also one of the co-hosts of Theocast. Now, I, for one, I think, David, you're the, probably the one that introduced me to Theocast, and I have come to fall in love with Theocast. Um, I listen to these guys on a regular basis. It's, again, four local guys who talk about the distinctives of Reformed theology, especially coming out of the morass that is contemporary evangelicalism. So if you haven't listened to Theocast, I would certainly encourage you to do so. They've had a number of guests on, some people that I happen to know a little bit, uh, Michael Horton, and I think he had Scott Clark on. Uh, so tell us, yeah. a little, tell us a little bit about that ministry, and then we'll go into uh, the area in particular that we want to talk about. Well, we, we consider Theocast to be a gateway drug uh, into Reformed theology for uh, evangelicals. That's basically our 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 take on it, and it it really started as a, a conversation between four pastors in the same sort of office context where we we would riff on things. And one day, a, a layman church member was with us when we were doing it. He said, "This isn't fair. You need to let us in on it." And so we thought thought mm -hmm. we would do that. We had some uh, things that we thought people would find insightful and helpful, and they would get to sit in a seat that they, you know, normally don't get to, to sit in. Mm. And we, we, we kind of made as our purpose to start pushing the distinctions between popular evangelicalism and the confessional Reformed uh, world, and lo and behold, if we didn't tap into just a significant group of people who were thinking the same thing at the, at the same time. Wow. Okay. And how long have you guys had the podcast going? Yeah, it's a little over two years now we've been doing it, and it's expanding and growing and diversifying, and we're writing out of it now and that sort of thing. So John Moffat is the really the, the, the director and brains behind a lot of the technical strategic things we do. And Jeremy carries some administrative responsibilities that come with the ministry. Ryan is in administrative leadership as well, and then I handle the, the creative in it all, uh, which means that I do the least amount of work, uh, and just because I just show up and say, "I think we should talk about this." But okay. really, those three men carry carry the ministry. Okay. So. Well, it's a, it's a good work that you guys are doing, and uh, I think especially for those of us, and because this is one of the things that I've discovered, that 
there are a significant number of people that fly under the banner of reform theology who did not grow up in reform in a reform setting mm -hmm. and it's more than just transitioning into a different system of theology uh, it's it's really it's a world change. It's you know you, exactly you know and there's a de you, you you know you mentioned a gateway. There's a detox period mm. because uh, there are certain presuppositions. Even if you hold intellectually to the the tenets of of grace, there's going to be a lag time uh, before those things really carry over into preaching and understanding of the scriptures. Uh, so th what you guys are doing are great. I, I know uh, it was helpful for me over the years when I was with uh, White Horse Inn to have Rod Rosenblatt because Rod, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rod is, is, is good in making those law gospel distinctives. And you'd be surprised at how much moralism and legalism still clings to you even when you understand the five points. Right. You know, what, what, uh, what I like to say is that reform, true reform theology is, is like, a, like a giant house with a giant hall in the middle. And mm -hmm. some people climb in through the window of law and gospel and they mm -hmm. hang out in that room. And then they hear the, you know, the bumping in the next room. There's something going on in there. and mm -hmm. they, they walk around there and there are the covenants and mm -hmm. they just start moving from one room to the other and then, then see it all held together by that bicovenantal. Uh, reality that runs all through Scripture, that the that the whole thing is held together. And so people enter from different places, but you are right. It, it has an accumulative effect until yeah. you're standing kind of in that great hall and you see the unity of the whole thing. Uh, then you look out the window back in evangelicalism, and it looks like a shanty town, you know, just yes. a shack here and there. <laughs> yes. um, and so dude, that that was my experience. I mean, that's really where I, I, I began was the, the redemptive historical Christocentric uh, reality in the Bible itself, which uh, I never got in the dispensational world. Mm. Well, one of the reasons, and I could go on with this, I, I think that's, that's just, uh, that's a book that needs to be written. Actually, I contributed one that talks about the journey into Reformed theology, but that's a story that, that needs to continue to be told. But uh, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Byron, is um, I saw that you were doing a series of lectures at your church on the development, uh, the development of evangelicalism through the Great Awakenings and so forth. So could you first give us an overview of, of that? Well, what I wanted to do with our congregation uh, was to do what's called the archaeology of the present as it concerns history. And what that really means is you look down at where you are and you, you start digging backwards. So it's, uh, it's, it's usually when we study history, we study from the farthest point back to where we are. And that can make comprehension difficult. It's one of the reasons people find history boring is that they can't make the connections between, you know, this dead Roman emperor and now. Mm -hmm. But if you if you start working backwards, the archaeology of the present process, and you you start putting pieces together, you actually begin to see the relevance of certain things. And the reason I chose that approach is that it's very clear, very evident that the vast majority of evangelicals don't don't know where the things they do and think came from. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that they're so accepting of it and don't really ask more critical questions or mm-hmm. see the inconsistencies and that sort of thing. So as you as you do that, as you begin to work backwards, you're 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 disproving things that need to be disproved, affirming things that need to be affirmed, but you're also drawing direct direct links between things that we do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which have no biblical foundation at all. They're just strictly cultural. But most people would not know that. Right. So, so yeah, I, I, what I'm doing is I'm allowing history to prove it for this. So it was strictly about the development in history of evangelicalism, where it came from. Hmm. And it begins with a simple question, really, which is, what's the definition of evangelical? And no one can answer that question because <laughs> it's partly impossible to define. Well, that, um, that, well, that's a, that's a good place to start because we're going to have to kind of progress a little bit, jump ahead, and then come back to the the, the starting pl- uh, gate. Uh, when we talk about the term evangelical, everyone knows how to use it, but seldom do people really know what it means. Now, uh, what I I think would be helpful is because we people identify as being evangelical to distinguish themselves from, say, fundamentalists. So let's talk about the development, the historical context that gave us first the phrase uh, fundamentalist and then why even evangelical became the, 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 you know, the, the descriptor that people wanted more than fundamentalism. And by the way, if you go all the way back to the Reformation, it's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, Rod used to tell us this, that uh, the first followers of Luther— wanted to call themselves the gospelers yeah or you know the evangelicals yeah. <laughs> and right. and so it, yeah it has a, a broader uh context but and luther used the term uh you know to describe some of the churches uh, to to separate the protestant churches in germany from the mm. catholic churches and so yes. he used the term evangelical churches yeah because they wanted to call themselves lutheran and he didn't want to be uh he didn't want them to be named after him yeah <laughs> So, so uh, Byron, could you give us a little historical context first of the term fundamentalist, and then why that fell into disuse? Well, I think broadly speaking, every every religion has a, a fundamentalist wing mm-hmm. of it, and when we think of fundamentalism in general, we we think of a, a kind of a, a reaction within a religious context seeking to push that religion back to strict conformity. So it's typically trying to defend the right things in the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, it sees a drift. I mean, if you go back to the Bible, this is where the Pharisees came from. Quite frankly, they were trying to do the right thing and got off track, trying to bring the, the nation back to a strict observance of the law and those sorts of things, second temple Judaism and mm-hmm. all of that reality. And I think fundamentalism with Amer- within American religion and the American religious landscape is, is exactly that. Well, that uh, there, uh, there was. Well, well and, and on that point, at a the, historically, it was a reaction against liberalism within Protestant circles and the rise of humanism in the broader culture. So right. that that exactly. yeah, so that there was this turning away from what they would consider the fundamentals of the Bible, and so they designated themselves as fundamentalists, claiming the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, 
and things that were fundamental to the faith. So initially, it wasn't what people think of fundamentalism today. That's right. No, it wasn't. I mean, when people think of fundamentalism today, they think of cultural fundamentalism. Uh, what we're talking about is a theological fundamentalism. Right. And of course, at the time, because the institutions where liberalism got in the door, where humanism got in the door, were the main uh, theological institutions in the country, uh, the reaction of fundamentalism, it, it was a suspicion towards uh, learning and academics and intellectualism and that sort of thing. And it also created a certain levels of separation. And so fundamentalism spawned, an, in many ways, the independent Bible movement, yes. and independent seminaries yes. and that sort of thing. And that in and of itself, I think, eventually led to some of the more cultural fundamentalist re realities that we see when we use that term loosely. But I mean, even even Machen himself had a hard time associating with fundamentalism, although he agreed with what they right. were trying to defend. He saw a lot of the inadequacies in the movement, in particular, just the fierce biblicism that, mm -hmm. that existed within fundamentalism and does you know now. Um, and so, yeah, in the beginning, uh, fundamentalism was, I would say, necessary. I don't I don't I don't think it was unnecessary. I think it, right. it, it was used to save the purity of the gospel and doctrine in the church. And, and as you pointed out, um, it eventually became anti-intellectualism or suspicious of any secular uh, higher education. Mm -hmm. But initially, okay. it, it really did kind of, um, and you can kind of see the seeds of it in the uh, Scopes Monkey Trial and the whole idea right. of, uh, of evolution. And at that point, they became fundamentalists in the, in the sense, or claiming fundamentalism, in, in the sense of acknowledging six literal days of creation, not only God as creator, but it became almost mandatory that you embrace six literal days of creation. And it, it really became sort of a, it, it, a paradigm uh, clash, uh, worldview. Right. And, and so it... it and and interpretively as well, it, it be, because of liberalism and the, met, the higher criticism mm -hmm. methodology, fundamentalism and fundamentalists responded by using a similar methodology to prove the authority or the inerrancy of the Bible, and, and really in many ways distorted the perspective of the Bible itself by trying to defend it, because now what, what people open up the book of Genesis, they think it's a science book. Yes, yes. And, yeah. and, and, and so it's interesting and ironic that in an attempt to defend the inerrancy of the Bible, which was different than the debate in the Reformation, <clears> because there was no question about inerrancy, it was over authority, that mm -hmm. uh, now most evangelicals are left with the Bible's either a science book or it's a handbook of principles, because that redemptive historic aspect of it was pulled apart by yeah. a fundamentalist approach. Yeah, what I noticed is that the, the issue of the Bible not being literal or inerrant became compensated or responded to by it being, you know, it, it is inerrant and, and it is infallible and it is, you know, literal. But in the, in the I guess in the in the recapturing of of that, the point of the scriptures being literal and inerrant, you know, that whole Christocentric epicenter of the literality of the scriptures was lost, and so. It's like we recaptured like uh, the integrity of the word itself, 
but not the point of that integrity, you know? And so we, we get this word-centeredness that somehow, I don't know, it somehow loses the, the reality of, of that word-centeredness that has a Christ-centeredness to that word. Well, it, it became it became biblicism in the worst possible sense. Uh, as a matter yeah. of, as a matter of fact, that that whole fundamentalist movement happens at the same time that you have a divorcing in the church from creeds and confessions. It it coincides with the the cliche: no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. So at the very time that we are claiming fundam- uh, our fundamental roots, we're distancing ourselves from, uh, from the standards that defined our faith. And, you know, so it was, it was just the Bible. And, and like you said, Byron, uh, people then began to look at the Bible as the explanation for everything but Christ. But let's fast forward a little bit, because, yeah. and, and we see the d- continuing deterioration of uh, fundamentalism because— Part of that, and I think one of the biggest and the worst contribution that Christianity has had on American culture is prohibition. Uh, And that certainly came out of the fundamentalist camp, uh, not so much um, as a theological movement, but the offshoot of fundamentalism is what led to the temperance movement. Right. And and in addition to that, it, it helped push uh, American Christianity towards more of a socioeconomic political lobbying organization. Exactly. Um, you know, kind of concerned with putting a fence around uh, morality uh, and, and moved it into that arena and, you know, further pushed it away from its origin and its original cause and, and confused it. And so I think when people think of fundamentalism, they think they, they think along these times and uh, these lines. And I think when people identify as fundamentalism, they're really identifying with this sort of this sort of ethos that's similar to that in the temperance movement itself. And then, of yeah. course, ultimately, we come to mid 20th century and evangelical or Christians started to kind of distance themselves from some of the extremes of fundamentalism and there were those within especially reform camps and, and some that were not necessarily reformed that also wanted to react against the anti-intellectualism that was becoming more and more characteristic of the fundamentalists. And this is kind of what opened the door to evangelicalism. Carl F. Henry would be one of the leaders in that. And, of course, you have the founding of uh, institutions of higher education. Wheaton College came out of that. Billy Graham actually kind of came out of that. Yep. So some of the they, they tried to recover some of the things that initially defined fundamentalism, but with a broader um, and more historic, Christ, uh, historically Christian-based Christian um, connections to it rather than just the movements at the time. So, and of course, uh, Christianity Today, the magazine, came out of that movement, and there were a number of other things that that came out of that, and evangelicalism became the term of choice. Would you agree with that? And most definitely, um, Carlos Henry's uh, trilogy, God, Revelation, and Authority, Mm -hmm. um, if if I get the title of that book right. Yes, I think that's it. was, Was a 
uh, almost a kind of a founding set of documents for this 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 movement. Of course, Billy Graham was at Fuller's Theological Seminary at the time, and there's this a very famous scene where he's sitting around with his Hebrew cards and that trying to you know learn Hebrew, and he just like tosses his cards in the air and says, "I'm out of here," because <laughs> he he wanted to push the church back towards mission. Yeah. and outreach and spreading again you have a one reaction to one thing pushing yep. the poles in a different uh direction uh and it's a, it's a mess and I, and one of the things i like to point out is that the moment the church moved out of that confessional structure that historic confessional structure it immediately lent itself to this sort of kind of confusing yep. back-and-forth mercurial event that happens from generation to generation. Yeah, it reminds me of something, uh, something my father would say. You never tear down a fence until you find out why it was built, because it may have been built to keep something either in or out. And the moment you tear it down, you might see what you're trying to keep in jump out, and that, or that which you're trying to keep out make its way in. Right. You know, I've often heard that the Carl F. Henry evangelical, the Christianity Today evangelical movement called the New Evangelicalism, and or Neo-Evangelicalism. And one of the reasons is that evangelicalism preceded that uh, on a number of levels and can be traced back, sure. all the way back, mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, the religion in America being founded in the Great Awakenings and those sorts of things. But that new evangelicalism is what the vast majority of people today are imbibing. You know, it's what they are a part of. Right. And that's why I wanted to look at the use and the transition of those two terms, fundamentalism, because in, in, in one sense, I think you, most of us would agree that what the early evangelicals, Carl Henry and the likes, what they were reacting against in what is called fundamentalism is the same way most of us would view contemporary evangelicalism. Right. So we, we have we've seen it it's it we've seen it run its course, we've seen it co-opted by various movements, and it has become something else. And so, you know, it's it's something other than what was initially intended. But back to your point, Byron, even if you go back to Billy Graham, who was one of the uh, one of the engineers of, of uh, even contemporary evangelicalism, there was something even early on in his, in his zeal that was not necessarily anchored to the confessions and creeds of the past. It was, it was still, even if it's the emphasis on missions or evangelism, it, it, it is something other than the fundamentals of the faith. Mm -hmm. And that right. some that other than yeah. be, became a defining character of a certain segment of that movement. Well, whenever, whenever, yeah, whenever, whenever the experience of conversion or the consequence of a conversion becomes like the like the epicenter of Christianity and not the Christ who converts and the things about the Christ who converts, then you know, you just the thing falls apart. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the foundational layers in order to to sustain itself appropriately. And what we'll see, and we'll, we're running out of time in this segment, but what we'll pick up on in the next one is the reason for that, and you've touched on this just a moment ago, Byron, that both the fundamentalist movement 
as well as the evangelical movement are both descendants of the awakenings. So, right. so they, you know, I think one way to say it is if you take the evangelicalism and you expand it out to its largest parameters, you could say that you, you can be an evangelical without being a fundamentalist, but you can't be a fundamentalist without being an evangelical. I think that they're, they're a fundamentalist is a breed mm-hmm. of an evangelicalism yes. that started a long time ago. And the reason that that's certain is because it's not in the confessional reformed world. So anything outside of that is evangelical. Now, in order to make sure people understand we're orthodox and not heretics, we often say we we hold to evangelical doctrines, but we're not a part of that right that movement. Uh, oh, I don't even know what to describe it. That amorphous reality. Um, so. You know, if you think about it emotionally as well, uh, if you just think about it, you know, from an emotional reaction, Billy, Billy Graham, Carl F. Henry, that group of people was responding to the extreme separatism and fundamentalism. Right. And the the result of that was uh, 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 an ecumenicism that went a completely different direction of which Billy Graham has been criticized for, you know throughout his entire life and ministry. And and again, I just want to point out the reason the polls swing so much is that the, the field which is chalked within Reformed theology is not chalked in the other world, and mm-hmm. nobody's in charge, really. Mm-hmm. It's like an evangelical food fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we will pick this up in our next discussion, but uh, thank you so much for joining us, Byron. We look forward to continuing this discussion next week. Uh, this is Ken Jones again from Saints and Sinners Unplugged, and we will look forward to, we look forward to joining you next week.